I think that's really important to focus on asset classes that are inversely correlated with the overall economy right now. So I made the case earlier about why self-storage is recession resistant. There's a lot of data to back that up. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. You're listening to another episode in the podcast bonus track, where I talk with experts about the hottest trends in real estate. And today I'm hosting Hunter Thompson. Uh, Hunter is a real estate investor who founded Cashflow Connections, a private equity firm based in LA and personally controls over $60 million in real estate. Our topic today is self-storage, one of the asset classes that attracts more and more investors these days. Hey, Hunter, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks again for having me. It's an honor to be on. Of course, absolutely. Can you, you know, perhaps start by giving us a little bit of a background about you beyond, you know, what I've covered already? Yeah, sure. So I think that a lot of people, when they start their story, it either starts or ends with 2008. And for me, it's no different, but my story really started at that moment. So I was still in college. I was studying macroeconomics. I was very interested in financial assets, but I wasn't heavily invested in them. So when 2008 happened, I was kind of under the impression that because of the atrocities that were taking place and the the massive price decreases, deflation that were taking place, there would be an opportunity somewhere. And so I started studying, um, just looking at value stocks, studying similar to like a Warren Buffett type of strategy and started investing in stocks. And basically trying to make play on companies that I thought would be the dominant benefactors of, you know, coming out of the recession. And as I continued to invest and and obviously saw success because the timing was just so fortunate, I started to really look into the details of what investing was all about and why people invest. And I think that the main thing that people are trying to accomplish when they invest, you really get down to it. If you whittle down, you ask the question over and over again, it usually comes down to a predictable outcome and cash flow to pay off expenses. And the challenge is that the stock market in particular is a very indirect route for accomplishing that goal. And as I started to come to this realization, something else happened, which a lot of people don't talk about, but was very impactful for me, which is the European debt crisis of 2010. And so basically what happened there was it's very similar to the liquidity challenges the United States faced, but it was in the European central banks, virtually everything froze up. And I remember watching CNBC and they were talking about the Greece bond yields. And they were saying, if the Greece bond yields, the 10-year, remained below 7%, that the S&P 500 was going to be fine. But if it went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And I just remember thinking, how is it the case that something so obscure that I could never mitigate or predict is playing a significant role in my financial future, so much so that everyone on CNBC is talking about it. And that's really how 
I ended up focusing on more simple asset classes and very quickly I was led to real estate. So that's kind of a, a brief background to my introduction. All right. Great, great. Very interesting. Let's dive right in. And, you know, one of the first questions that I have is it seems like right now, especially in the last year or so, there's a lot of interest in self-storage. So what happened that self-storage is so hot right now? Where, where has it been all those years? Yeah, uh, it's an interesting question. And I think that, you know, everything goes in cycles. And I think that during the late stage of the cycle, people start to get more interested in more creative ways to allocate capital. And I think there's good reason for that. I mean, you know, I studied economic in college. I didn't really learn much in terms of real world applications, but some data points that I find very compelling right now are very straightforward. Number one, the baby boomer population. 10,000 people are entering the age of retirement, or I should say turning 65, because very little of them have savings for retirement. A lot of them are relying on Social Security as a main source of income. The challenge is that that's mathematically pretty much impossible. The average Social Security check is about $1,300 a month. The average two-bedroom apartment rents for about $1,200 a month. So even in its current state, and I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the fact that Social Security is going to face some major, major solvency problems without yeah. even getting into all that. Just in its current state, this is mathematically impossible. So I'm anticipating a lot of uh, downsizing. I'm anticipating a lot of people being in demand for things like affordable housing or going from a three bedroom to a two bedroom or going from a three bedroom single family house to an apartment. That is very compelling when it comes to self storage because the United States is a consumer market and people historically do not want to get rid of their stuff when they make those downsizing choices. Similarly, towards the end of the cycle, things start to become really popular when you know, things correct. You're talking about not only downsizing, but kids moving home from college. You're talking about people losing their jobs or having to change jobs. All of these are more common during recessions and all of them drive demand for self-storage. However, and this is really critical, right now, in my opinion, the reason that's becoming more popular is not because of that. It's really in spite of that in the sense that other asset classes are so competitive that they've driven the price up and now people are chasing yield trying to achieve those similar returns. And uh, that's actually quite frightening. It creates an opportunity for us as self-storage investors to take advantage of that in one way or the other. But generally speaking, uh, it's a combination of those two things. Got it. All right. Thank you for the insight. That that was very interesting. And when you're talking about self-storage, I'm sure there are, you know, some markets that are better for self-storage than others. And maybe it's it's not the same, you know, obviously as, as other types of real estate investments, such as apartment buildings. So what makes a strong self-storage market? Well, I'll put it this way. We'll start with kind of the challenges with self-storage and then back our way in. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's not very talked about very often, uh, you hear frequently in the multifamily sector, replacement costs, right? And this makes right. sense. This is an important metric. If you can't build the property for less than you're buying it, or if you're getting a significant discount to its replacement costs, it's very challenging to think that competitors can come into the market. With self-storage, uh, pulling away the mask here, you almost never hear that data point. The reason is that it's not favorable because it's very inexpensive to build these things, right? And that's one of the benefits of the asset class. We can talk about that as well. The challenge though, is you need to be very cautious about overbuilding in certain markets. So a good rule of thumb is the national average of self-storage square footage per person is about 7.8 square foot per person. And if you're looking at a market where there is a significant undersupply based on that national average, that's a really good sign. 
usually people drive a maximum of five miles to get to a self-storage facility. So what we can do is look at a, a circumference, an area diameter, about five miles in a radius of around that area and take the population of that area and the square footage and find out that ratio. And if it's below that seven, seven square foot per person, we're usually in an undersupplied market. Now, that is not to say that all markets are the same. Uh, there are many markets where you can actually have twice that and still be in a really, really advantage uh, situation. I'll give you an example. Melbourne, Florida, uh, it's a, a relatively high income market. It's surrounded right. by water. People are affluent neighborhoods. They need places to store their things, particular things like jet skis and boats. And so you can see 12 square foot per person, et cetera, and still be in a good position. But it's a good rule of thumb when it comes to looking at markets. Uh, and I can go some other details, but generally speaking, you need money and uh, things to store. And so we look for markets that have both of that. 50,000 people in a certain area within a five-mile radius, $50,000 a median household income or more. And you'll start to see it's more and more advantageous when you get into that $100,000 a median household income markets like that. But the market knows that, so the cap rates will reflect that. But um, those will give you some of the metrics that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. And then when we're thinking about the recession, because obviously we're, we've been in a very, very long cycle. We don't know if right now we're at the end of the cycle or in two years we're going to be at the end of the cycle. But bear not in mind, what are the risks or how risky is it to invest in self-storage if you're in the middle of a recession all of a sudden? Yeah, and I think that's really the number one question right now for any investor out there, regardless of the asset class or the risk profile. So, you know, to put some numbers on what you just alluded to, as of the recording of this podcast, we're in our 111th month of the expansionary period of this particular expansion. So that is the second longest in the history of the United States since the Civil War. The is 111 months. The longest ever is is 120 months. So if you make it into next summer, we're going to be setting that record. Now, two things. Number one, I think it is likely that that may happen, that we do set the record. And the reason for that is that the severity of that last recession was quite an anomaly. And the fact that the recession was drawn or caused by a complete debt freeze up and a deleveraging means that the typically, historically speaking, the recovery is much longer. So I can see an argument to be why that may be the case. Now, to address your question about you know, protecting your investments during recessions, I think that's really important to focus on asset classes that are inversely correlated with the overall economy right now. So I made the case earlier about why self-storage is recession resistant. There's a lot of data to back that up. I can link to an ebook that I kind of compress some of that data and make it digestible. But more importantly, that thesis is only important as far as the debt component is very conservative. So what I mean by that is that regardless of the demand for the product, that only paints half the story. To be more accurate, it usually paints about 33% of the story and the rest of that is debt. Because when you buy real estate, you're putting about 33% down and the rest of it is leveraged. Mm -hmm. So if something goes wrong with the 66% that's leveraged, you're gonna have a problem and you're gonna have a serious problem. In fact, I would make the argument that about 99% of all the challenges in real estate, particularly those related to loss of principal, are a result of the debt being inappropriate in some capacity. The debt coming due too soon, the interest rate raising too quickly, any kind of thing like that. So for me, this is something that's almost never talked about. It's clearly the most important part of the capital stack. 
which is debt financing and the terms. So what I want to focus on is making sure that we're getting appropriate financing where the loan to value is conservative. We have a fund right now where the average is below 60%. That's in my opinion. It's very, very conservative. Yeah, I agree. You just want to put yourself in positions. It basically inverts the typical way people talk about things. So instead of talking about how much value you can add to the property, talk about how much you can protect your investment by. Those can be the same metrics, but looking at it through that lens. I'll give you a perfect example that I think our listeners will find compelling. So with self-storage, one of the reasons I like the business is that it is very complicated. And so there gives you a lot of opportunities to really outmanage your competition. One of the things we do is we have relationships through our sponsors that we work with, with a U-Haul, and we'll buy properties based on in-place income that have no uh, truck rental component. And then we'll leverage those relationships. As soon as we buy the property, we'll call our contact at U-Haul. They'll bring 15 to 40 trucks on our facility, and we'll get a commission for renting those trucks to our tenants. That one strategy is very favorable on a risk-adjusted basis because you're not developing units. You're not converting things. You're not expanding things. You're not relying on the city to grant you this and that and the other thing. You're just implementing the strategy. I've invested in properties where that one line item has added $3,500 a month to the NOI, directly to the bottom line. So, you know, again, that's adding significant value, but the way to look at it through the more appropriate lens right now is that's protecting your equity. So in the event that you do see a rapid cap rate expansion, that extra $600,000 of equity is going to come in very handy if you need to refinance, really tying in all again, it's all about the debt. Mm-hmm. We talked about returns earlier. You know, you mentioned the, that the returns and the cap rates are more favorable. What should an investor be expecting when it comes to the average return for a typical deal? And I know it's it's very different from one state to another, but maybe, you know, if you can share maybe the national cap rate, so with apartment, you know, buildings, it's around 5%, probably slightly less than that now, but across the board. Yeah. So, I mean, in the markets that we're looking for, uh, you would expect to see about a six and a half to 7% cap rate if the property was fully stabilized, meaning that you're basically buying a coupon clipper and about that rate, six and a half percent in a favorable market that we would say 30 minutes outside of a market like Charlotte. Right. And that's not 30 minutes outside of a market like LA. It's categorically different, but 30 minutes outside of a market where there is a significant in place demand, but there's also potential for growth, those tertiary markets. Um, I'd also like to be 30 minutes outside of a market like Austin, 30 minutes outside of a market like Denver, not in those city hubs where you're really just relying on cap rate compression, but being in those relatively 30 minutes outside of a secondary market. I would also say that those return profiles overall, you know, what we typically target is low to mid-teens net to investors. And that's the profile that we're in, uh, typically focused on value-add investments. So we do implement things like those U-Haul strategies. We do implement things like mandating that all the tenants buy tenant insurance, which can also add, let's say, $1,500 a month to the NOI. But we're also willing to conduct capital expenditure meaning that you're incurring some sort of risk to get a more favorable IRR on the back end. So converting standard units to climate controlled units in the self-storage business is one way to accomplish that. But again, when you're incurring that risk, there needs to be that return or better yet, protection to the downside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So what major questions investors should ask when they're conducting due diligence on on an investment, self-storage investment? 
Well, I mean, the first thing is I would say that my position in the business is kind of niche. So you would want to ask this question to a lot of different people and get you get different answers for their particular strategies. I find the passive investments approach very compelling. So my questions are usually focused on the sponsor themselves. And I think this is really interesting, especially when it comes to self-storage. If people are interested in getting the self-storage business as an owner, I usually tell them, look, the complexities of the business make it such that it's really a good idea to rely on someone that has a significant amount of systems in place. So when you look at single family, one of the benefits of the asset class is the simplicity of the investment. But the challenge with that is that if you own two or you own 2,000, your systems don't really change. It's, a, it's just, is it rented and, and can you raise the market rates and, or not? You're not gonna get a lot of the benefits of economies of scale, but allows a lot of people to invest in it without making some major mistakes. With self-storage, if you are buying your first self-storage property, as opposed to someone that's buying their hundredth, you're at a significant disadvantage. We buy properties from people that have one or two properties because they don't know how to accurately run that business. They haven't been in the business for decades. So I say all this because my questions are really about the sponsor, understanding their track record and taking everything that they say and going one or two steps deeper than most investors. Now, this is really critical in this stage of the cycle. So I'll give you an example of that. Everyone says, you know, look at their track record. Okay, sure. but. That's just an Excel sheet. I, what I want to do is go and analyze that track record and see how it lines up with the overall economy. That's a really important part. If you have a business that's been around for eight years, my sister could have made a lot of money in real estate if she invested in multifamily in Texas starting 2010. That's no disrespect to her. She's in art school. She doesn't focus on real estate, but anyone, anyone could do it. So you want to understand that if that is your focus, you want to take that to the next level. Another example is people claiming to own properties. You need to verify that if you're doing accurate due diligence. So you can pull a preliminary title report on a property to find out what entity actually owns that property. Because I can just say I own this $50 million property in downtown right. Los Angeles. Right. And that's the kind of thing that it's more and more important now as we are facing you know, some sort of economic corrections, certainly within the next two or three or five years or whatever it is. Right. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting point. And, you know, going back to your point about trying to manage one or, you know, or a few self-storage units versus hundreds of them, we already, you have the know-how, you have the tools that you have, you've been doing that, you already have a system in place. So the cost to manage each unit is a lot lower than just to manage one. And that's definitely one of the advantages of investing passively with a syndicator who knows, you know, what they're doing, what he's doing and make it a true passive investment. A lot of people have an idea of passive income as a non W2 income. And uh, they think, okay, I'm going to buy, uh, you know, one self storage unit or a single family home, and then they have to manage it. It's, it's a second job. It's not really passive. And then, you know, when it comes to the questions that you need to ask the sponsors, so basically what you're saying is look at the experience that they have and how they performed. Hopefully, you know, if they have a track record prior to 2010 and see how they were, you know, how they were doing, you know, during those years. Any other questions that investors, passive investors should ask or things that they should be aware of before they enter into a deal in, you know, in self-storage? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that one thing that doesn't get enough attention is looking at the properties uh, pro forma. 
and looking, comparing that to the property's track record prior to the, the purchase. Okay. So the way that we do this is we look at the trailing three and the trailing 12 month financials and analyze that in comparison to the year one projections. And what are the trailing three and, and trailing 12 for those who don't know? Yeah, thanks for thanks for stopping me there because it's a really critical point. The most recent three month and most recent twelve month uh, monthly financial income statements of the property, which mm-hmm. the seller will provide the sponsor, and so if you can review those, uh, which the sponsor should have, you can compare that to what they're anticipating for the year one. This is a really good step. That again, taking your investment career to the next level, this will be the kind of thing that will really elevate your understanding of the deal. And so, one example of that is to look at any of the significant differences between the trailing three months or trailing twelve month financials and the year one financials. A good example is the operating expense ratio. So, without even going to the details of the entire pro forma, you can just say, you know, if the property previously if half of the income was going to expenses, and then in year one, it's only 40% of the income, you would want to then identify what is causing that change. Mm -hmm. And then ask the sponsor what their perspective is on why they're able to justify that change. Now, that is a huge difference, 50% to 40%. But in the self-storage business, it's possible. It really is. You just need to understand that the sponsor is able to justify that on a line-by-line basis. 40% is usually in the lower range of what we'd expect. So it'd be a really great property, maybe a large property that only has one property manager, for example. Mm -hmm. But in the business, you can find gross mismanagement. And so things like that allow you to have that upside. Going back to that, you know, the significant difference between mom and pop owners and best in class owners. Any questions regarding the pro forma, even if they're questions that have simple answer, oh, what is this late fee for? And how did you estimate it that? Well, if the sponsor says, we have three properties within a a three-hour drive of this property, and they're all performing at about that same rate, that's a really great answer. What isn't a great answer is we downloaded the spreadsheet from biggerpockets.com and we just input it into our template. But you're not going to get that straight up, but you're going to get uh, you get a spectrum somewhere in between that. <laughs> Got it. That's a very good uh, answer. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, my, my uh, one of my last questions is kind of a personal one. But before I get there, I just want to thank you for enlightening us uh, about, you know, self-storage. I definitely know a little bit more about it now. It's not, you know, something that I focus on. So thank you so much for that. You know, what I wanted to ask you is if you could look back and just give an advice for piece of advice for your 20 year old self, what would it be? Wow. Yeah, that is a good question. And it's it's one of those things. I mean, before I even answer it, I will say that I have been very fortunate in the people that I've met. And I've been able to meet a lot of people, rub shoulders with people and be associated with a lot of people. And it is such an honor to be able to answer a question like that, because I know that I hopefully being able to give some knowledge to someone that was in a position or what the exact position that I was on when I was younger. The first thing I would say would be that education is absolutely key. I think that's something people say a lot, but if you are absolutely focused to your craft, it can be very, very lucrative. This business has the potential to generate massive amounts of wealth. So uh, one thing I would say, wish I had done this a long ago, is using large time blocks during my day that are pre-blocked to focus 100% on whatever you think it's going to take it uh, to make your business scale or take you to the next level. So for me, I really love doing interviews. So I've blocked a significant amount of my time every single day to focus on either doing those interviews or uh, reaching out to people to get on their programs. 
prior to that, you know, when I was still really focused on education, that was all I would be doing, reading every single real estate book that had anything to do with it. So if you can go all in, that doesn't mean invest right now. That means go 100% all in on education, constantly be reaching out to people, and you'll find a quickly building up a network that will help you snowball your career. And that's the thing that you can really do to 10x or 100x your business. But it can't be done in increments of 30 minutes. So I say an hour and a half minimum, usually three hours will get it done every single day if you're focused on whatever that X factor is, and you'll see incredible results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, The One Thing by uh, Gary Keller. I don't know if you read that book. Yeah, and I, I like that one. And another one that's a little bit more technical, but very similar uh, perspective is Deep Work. The author is really, really putting forth the idea that the real movers and shakers of the future are going to be very cognitively demanding tasks. And I couldn't agree more because you cannot outsource those and you can't turn those into an algorithm. So that is uh, absolutely key going forward. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That, that was great. Thank you, Hunter. So where can our listeners find you? Well, you can go to the Cashflow Connections website, cashflowconnections.com. Mm -hmm. um, we also have a podcast. If you guys are listening to this and you're enjoying the, the podcast medium, which I'm a huge fan of in terms of educating people, the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast in iTunes. And if you're interested, I can shoot you a free ebook that goes over some of that data that I was talking about earlier. Don't worry, it's not too nerdy. Just shoot me an email at info at cashflowconnections.com and my assistant will shoot you a copy of that. All right, great. Thank you again, Hunter, for you know a, a very insightful discussion. And I really appreciate it. Hope that the listeners all already also got a lot of value the same way that I did. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.